Let us go now to the reading of God's most holy word in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let us go now to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, which is the sermon text for today. There we read Paul's instructions to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of it today. In the previous passage, the apostle began to encourage a worthy walk within the Christian home. And he started by commanding wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And while the sermon last week was directed mainly towards wives, there was something for all of us to learn about submission and authority in general. For we are all called to submit to someone And most of us have authority over someone. And so in our submission, we are to submit as to the Lord. And in our authority, we are to lead with the love of Christ. And here in the passage that is before us today, the apostle turns his attention to Christian husbands, saying this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You will notice that the Apostle devotes three times as much space to his instructions for husbands when compared to his instructions for wives. 
But you will also notice that the command that he gives to husbands is really very simple. The central command that Paul gives to husbands is restated three times in this passage. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And then again in verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. So clearly the apostle's central concern is to communicate that husbands have this responsibility, this obligation, this privilege to love their wives. Everything else that he says in this passage communicates the manner, the rationale, the motive for the husband to fulfill this central command to love their wives. It should be recognized that Paul does not command the husband to rule or to merely lead his wife, but to love her. And it would not have been surprising for Paul to say, husbands, lead your wives, given what he said about the relationship between the wife and the husband in the previous passage. Remember verses 22 through 24. He said this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So given this teaching, it would not have been unreasonable for Paul to say, husbands, lead your wives. But he does not say that. Instead, three times over, he tells husbands to love their wives. This is how they are to lead. They are to lead. They are to fulfill their responsibility as the head of the wife by loving. It really is the same thing as saying leading, but more is communicated concerning the manner of the leading. Husbands are to love their wives. They are to lead in this way. They are to fulfill their calling as head of the wife in this manner. Now, when Paul wrote to the Colossians and addressed the relationship between husbands and wives, He was more direct. You probably should know that there are many parallels between the book of Ephesians and Colossians. There are some passages in Colossians that sound almost identical to passages that we find in the book of Ephesians. And Paul in Colossians does also direct direct his attention to the Christian home. He gives instructions there to husbands and wives. But he is more direct, as I have just said. In Colossians, this is how he spoke to wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And that concludes Paul's treatment of the Christian marriage in the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, 18 and 19. You will notice that Paul says essentially the same thing in Ephesians. But here in Ephesians, the apostle elaborates more. In Ephesians, Paul also addresses the manner, the rationale, and the motive for the husband's love. Now in our day... It is what Paul says to wives concerning submission that is considered controversial. I don't have to tell you that. You know this. Uh, When Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands, that is controversial in our day. But in the first century Greco-Roman context, Paul's command for husbands to love their wives would have been the controversial thing. It was not at all uncommon for husbands in that day to maintain a rather cold and utilitarian kind of relationship with their wives. Wives were to bear the children. They were to raise the children and manage the home. And oftentimes husbands in that culture, they were content if they could simply trust their wives to fulfill these duties. And so the marriage relationship was oftentimes 
uh, very cold and, as I have said, utilitarian. But Paul, when he speaks to Christian husbands, when he speaks to Christian men, he commands that they go beyond this. He insists that God's design for marriage is more than just a a utilitarian kind of relationship where the wife does her job and the husband does his, but there's no intimacy, there's no companionship. Husbands are not to rule or merely lead, but they are to love their wives, Paul says. And this view springs quite naturally from the biblical view of marriage. Paul said what he said because he was biblical. He understood God's design for the marriage relationship from the beginning, and he gives his instructions based upon that. In marriage, a husband and wife enter into a one-flesh union. In marriage, a husband and wife are companions by virtue of their covenant bond. This is what the wife is called by Malachi the prophet. She is a companion in covenantal relationship with her husband. And so it will not do, therefore, for a husband to rule his wife or to merely lead his wife in Christ. Instead, the Christian husband is to love his wife. This is how he is to lead her. This is how he is to fulfill his role as head over her. He is to love her. Now, love is terribly misunderstood in our day. Many assume that love is an emotion that is felt. Many equate it with romance, physical attraction. And while love does sometimes involve these things, oftentimes it does, it is something else at its core. To love, biblically, is to count others more significant than yourself. To love is to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here I am referring to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. To love is to take the posture of a servant. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, the way that the scriptures talk about love, they they talk about love as if it is a choice that is made, as if it is a way of life, as as if it is a decision To treat somebody in a particular way, it's deeper than an emotion that is felt. It's more than an attraction. It's more than romance. Love, before all of that, is a decision. It is a choice that we make to treat others in a particular way. And husbands are called to treat their wives in this way. They are to love them. They are to lead them in love. Stated differently, Husbands are to treat their wives in the same way that all Christians have been called to treat one another. And I want to direct your attention backwards in in Ephesians to 425 again. And I've adapted the text here just a bit to make it specific to the marriage bond so that you get the point. But there in Ephesians 425, Paul speaks to all Christians. But here again, I have adapted it to speak to husbands. Husbands are to put away all falsehood and speak the truth with their wife. They are members one of another. And if they are angry, never are they to sin. They should not let the sun go down on their anger. Verse 29, they are to let no corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to their wife. They must not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom they were sealed for the day of redemption. They must let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from them along with all malice. The husband is to be kind to his wife, tender-hearted, Forgiving her as God and Christ forgave them. So you see the 
The Christian husband is called to treat his wife in the same way that he is called to treat all other Christians. This isn't something unique to the marriage bond. The Christian is to love one another. The Christians are to love one another. And the Christian husband is simply to love his wife. So Christian husbands are not held to a lower standard when it comes to their relationship with their wife, but to a higher one. Not only are they united to their wives in Christ, assuming that they are also believers, but they are also bound together in a one flesh union, as we will see in just a moment in this text. The standard is not lower, but higher, therefore. If all Christians are called to relate to one another as described in Ephesians 4.25 and following, how much more are they to relate to their wives in this way? So Christian husbands are not called to rule over their wives, nor are they called to merely lead. They are called to something higher. They are told to lead in love, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. In the second half of verse 25, the apostle begins to describe the manner in which the husband is to love his wife. What should his love look like? That might be a question that you are asking. Okay, so I understand that the Christian husband is to love his wife, but what does that look like? Um, what, should, what should the manner be? And I believe that is what Paul is here answering in the second half of verse 25 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word as is very significant here. This is what it is to look like. You're to, you're to mimic Christ in this regard. Just as Christ loved the church, so too are you, husband, to love your wife. Uh, the Christian husband is to lead his wife, for he is the head of his wife. He has authority over her. He is responsible for her, therefore, And how is he to lead? He is to lead by loving her. And what is this love to look like? What is it to involve? Once more, the Christian husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So if the Christian husband wishes to know how to love his wife, he must look to Christ and carefully consider Christ's love for the church. There is his model. Just as Christ is the head of the church, so too the husband is head of his wife and the husband is to love his wife, just as Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? That is the next question we must ask. Do we know? We had better know. As a husband, you had better know how Christ loved the church, for there is your model. You are to mimic Him. And many things could be said about Christ's love for the church. But Paul's little phrase, and gave himself up for her, sums it up very nicely, doesn't it? There's a lot packed into that little phrase. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, Well, how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. That is what he says. This sums it up very nicely. Christ loved the church, that is to say, all who will believe upon him to the salvation of their souls, by giving himself up for her. And this is how the Christian husband is to relate to his wife. He is to mimic Christ by giving himself up for his bride. Christ lived for the good of his bride, that is to say, the church. He suffered for her. He died for her. He saw to it that her every spiritual need was provided for. In short, he gave himself up for her. And the apostle elaborates on what Christ has done for his bride, saying that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here Paul is telling us more about how Christ has loved the church. 
And there are two metaphors being utilized here in verses 26 and 27, which I've just read. First of all, Paul uses the language of sacrifice and purification to describe what Christ has done for the church. He gave himself up for her as a sacrifice. That is the meaning. And by the way, a bit of a tangent here. The doctrine of limited atonement is taught here in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we might ask this question, for whom did Christ die? Who did he die for? And the answer is, he died as a sacrifice for his bride, that is to say, the church. Another way to put this is that he died for the elect of God in every age. And this corresponds to what is said in John 10, 15. We hear Jesus' words there. He said, I lay my life down for the sheep, is what he says. So here he is speaking of giving himself up for in his death, some group of people, and he is referring specifically to the sheep and not to the goats. But I digress. The question that is before us today is, how did Christ love the church? And the answer is that he gave himself up for her as a sacrifice so that he might sanctify her. That is to say, set her apart and make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Again, this is the language of sacrifice and purification. Christ shed His blood so that His people might be cleansed. And they receive this cleansing through the hearing of the Word of God, the Gospel of Truth, as they believe upon His name. And all of this is symbolized in the water of baptism. And this is what the Apostle has in mind when he says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. I think he is here alluding to Christian baptism. Christ has purified His people by giving Himself up for them. That is the teaching. Secondly, Paul uses the language of a wedding when he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is rich doctrine that is being presented to us here, brothers and sisters, in this passage. Um, This passage is all about marriage, husband's relationship to the wife, but here we are getting wonderful instruction concerning Christ's relationship to the church, aren't we? We're being reminded of Christ's love for the church. We're being reminded of how it is that He gave Himself up for her and all that He has done for her. He has washed her. He has purified her by His sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. And He has also sanctified her and set her apart so that He might be wed to her. The language of of, of a wedding is being used here. The church, as is taught elsewhere, is the bride of Christ. The church, that is to say all who believe upon Christ in every time and place, has been purified and cleansed by Christ in preparation for her wedding day. And this is what Paul is here referring to. And when will this wedding day be? And the answer is, when Christ returns. Do not forget what the angel said to John near to the end of the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, he says. And so here he is referring to those who will enter into the new heavens and new earth, those who have life eternal. But all of that is described in in the terms of a great wedding feast. On that day when the Lord returns to make all things new, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the table, um, the the new heavens and earth, and, and, and the consummation of all things are described in the terms of a wedding feast. And remember how Paul spoke to the Corinthians, saying, I feel a divine jealousy for you, 
since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I mean, that's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Interesting language that Paul is using when he's speaking to the church in Corinth. He's saying, I have this righteous and divine kind of jealousy for you. I'm eager to see you united to God through faith in Christ at the end of time. I've betrothed you to him. And so he saw his ministry as being essentially this, uh, a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry that involved preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith in Christ, being cleansed so that they might be united to him. And he was eager to see all of that come to a consummation. Now, clearly, the husband is not Christ. I hope you brothers do understand that. You are not Christ. I am not Christ. The husband is not the savior of his wife. You might think that you are, but you are not. You're not the savior of your wife. The husband did not, nor can he die for her to atone for her sins. Only Christ can. The husband cannot sanctify his wife in the way that Christ can, by his word and spirit. But the point that is being made in this passage is that the husband is to mimic Christ in all of these things. Husbands, love your, love your wife just as or as Christ loved the church. So here is your model. He is Christ. You are not. Here is what he has done for his bride, the church. And you are to mimic him in all of this. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ's love for the church is unconditional, friends. You, you realize that. He loved us and gave His life for us, not because we were deserving, but by His grace alone. He loved us, not because He found us to be lovely, but to make us lovely. We were His enemies, remember. We were dead in our sins and by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I'm here reading from Ephesians 2, 4-7 through for a reason. This statement from Paul in 525, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, cannot be considered in isolation from the rest of what he has said in the book of Ephesians. Earlier, the great love of God, the great love of Christ has been described to us. And husbands are to love their wives in this way. Christ's love for the church was unconditional. He did not love us because we were lovely, but he loved us despite our sin. He laid his life down for us while we were yet sinners in order to make us lovely. And so the husband's love for his wife is to also be unconditional. And yet so often our love is conditioned upon the performance of others. Though we might never say it with our lips because we know it is not right. We do say it in our hearts perhaps. I'll love you provided that you are lovely. But this is what the law says and not the gospel. In the law, God says, do this and you shall live. And none except Christ can keep the law. None have kept it. And so none except Christ will find life in the law. Do this and you shall live, the law says. But we all violate the law of God in thought, word, and deed. It leads only to death. 
But the gospel says, live, for this is what Christ has done for you unconditionally. This is the gift that he has provided. And what I am saying, brothers, husbands, is that we are to love our wives unconditionally. We are to put the gospel on display and not the law. Our love for our wives should not be conditioned upon their behavior, upon their loveliness, but rather we should love freely. We should love always. We should choose to love, even in those moments when it's difficult. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I'm preaching to myself here too, brothers. You understand that, right? I can feel my wife looking at me right here. Um, no. This is hard. This can be very difficult. Our flesh does get in the way, doesn't it? Our pride gets in the way. It is so easy for us to be offended and to feel as if, uh, you know, it is not right that, that I, the Supreme One, you know, be offended. Uh, that's pride. We must learn to lay our lives down for, for our wives and to love them unconditionally as Christ loved the church. Christ's love for the church is also sacrificial. He gave himself up for her, remember. And I will not repeat what I've already said, but will simply remind you to think beyond the heroic and to bring this principle into the day-to-day realities of marriage. When you rise from bed in the morning, do not first think, what do I want out of today? But rather, what does God want from me? And what can I do to please my wife and meet her needs? Brothers, if this self-sacrificial way of living sounds miserable to you, then you have not yet learned the way of Christ. You have not yet learned the blessing of, of service. I have said, learn to think beyond the heroic for a reason. I I think that a lot of men, perhaps, when they read that little phrase, and gave himself up for her, their minds might immediately go to the heroic. I would die for you, you know. Well, that is good. I hope that you would lay your life down in that heroic way, being willing even to die in the place of of your wife. But I think that it is actually the day-to-day and mundane things of life that the Apostle has in mind. Not so much the heroic, but learning to simply die to yourself daily and momentarily, to, to be offended but to not respond in anger, instead to respond with love and kindness, to be willing to help the wife with chores around the house, to be willing to clothe yourself with that garb of a servant con- consistently. I think that is what is uh, to, be, uh, to, to come to mind here when we read that phrase. Christ's love for the church is sacrificial. He died heroically for us. He hung on that cross in our place. But he also clothed himself with the garb of a servant and washed the feet of his disciples in a most unheroic way, a most common way. He took the posture of a servant. And there we see his love for the church put on display. We are to mimic that too. Christ's love for the church is a sanctifying love. Again, the husband is not Christ. Neither is the husband the Holy Spirit. And so never should he try to be. Sanctification is God's work to do, not ours ultimately. But the husband is to be used by the Lord to sanctify his wife. Just as the wife will surely be used by the Lord to sanctify her husband. Uh, Marriage can be like a sanctifying and refining fire. And that is good. Husbands, you are to encourage your wife in the faith, therefore. You're to pray for her. You're to minister the word of God to her. 
You're to never be harsh with her in this, which is what Paul specifically warns against in that Colossians passage that I read earlier, saying, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So be used by the Lord to sanctify your wife, for sure, but be sure that you do not become harsh. And this is what Peter had in mind when he said, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That is a very powerful passage, I think, for husbands to consider. Never should the husband be harsh, and neither should he nag or nitpick. In fact, a husband would be wise to affirm his wife often, to build her up with words of encouragement, and to be very careful when offering words of criticism. We are to remember the proverb, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So the command is this, husbands, love your wives. And in what manner, you might ask, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we turn our attention to verses 28 through 31, where the apostle reasons with the husband to love their wives on the basis of their one flesh union with them. The argument is this, follow along with it closely. Brother, love your wife, for you are one flesh with her. And given that you are one with her in the marriage bond, loving your wife means that you actually love yourself. Listen again to verses 28 through 31. In the same way a husband should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice that Paul roots his reasoning in Scripture by quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When a husband and wife enter into the covenant of marriage, they become one flesh. Their lives are joined together as one. And this is true of every legitimate marriage, whether or not the couple knows it. This marriage covenant creates a one flesh bond, a mysterious bond, a spiritual bond, where the two become one. And notice the mention of the church's union with Christ, with the words, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So again, there is a connection that is to be made between the one flesh union that exists between husbands and wives and the spirit wrought union that exists between Christ and all who believe upon his name. If we have faith in Christ, then we are joined to him by the spirit. He is the head and we are the body. And finally, notice the rationale. If it is true that a husband is so joined to his wife in the covenant of marriage, then it follows that he would be wise to love her, to nourish her and cherish her, and a fool not to. Again, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. There are exceptions to this rule. Some do engage in self-harm, but I think that also makes the point. Those who engage in self-harm are broken and are in a and are in need of healing and restoration, while those who are well nourish and cherish their own flesh to the glory of God. That is the reasonable thing to do, right? To take care of yourselves, to take care of your body. And here is what Paul is exhorting husbands to realize, that because you are one flesh with your wife, it only makes sense, it is natural, it is is reasonable for you to cherish your wife, to cherish your wife, to nurture her, is going to bring, bring blessing upon you yourself as a husband. I have often exhorted Christian men to love their wives, to serve them and cherish them by presenting this same rationale to them, the rationale of the apostle, saying, 
something like this. Trust me, brother, you will be glad that you did. Wake up each day being ready to serve your wife. Look out for her needs and not for your own. Be eager to please her. Take that posture of a servant in the home and you will be glad that you did. Do you want it good, brother? Do you want it good? Then love your wife. Live not for yourself but for her. Lay aside your desires. Seek to fulfill hers. And just watch and see how that will come back to bless you. Now, I do understand that this reasoning can be twisted. It can be misapplied by those who are self-serving in the heart. You could just see men thinking, okay, I'll love her because I want to be blessed. I don't think that's the point. I don't think that loving our wives so that we might be blessed should be our primary motivation. Our love for God and our sincere love for our wife should be the primary motives for our love for our wife. Our wife. But nevertheless, this is a motivation. In fact, the scriptures often call us to obedience to God, obedience of all kinds, by reminding us of how blessed it is to obey Him. The scriptures do this in other places. Take, for example, that most famous psalm, Psalm 1, verse 1, that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. What is that, what is that famous psalm doing? It, it is presenting to us this rationale. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be truly happy in this life? Truly satisfied? Prosperous? Fruitful? Do you want all of that? Then live in obedience to God. Submit to His law. Keep His commandments. And, and just watch and see if, that, that these blessings will be poured out upon you. It is a rationale. It is a motive for obedience, isn't it? What should our primary motive be? Well, we should obey God because He is God. I want to bring glory to His name. Also, we should obey God because of our love for our neighbor, uh, for their good. But this is nevertheless a motive to see that there is great blessing in keeping the commandments of God. And so too, it is for the husband. Brother, please recognize you're in a one flesh union with the woman that you're married to. Bless her, live for her good, and just see that that blessing will return to you. In Matthew 10, 39, Christ himself reasons in a similar way, saying, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? You're saying, Christ, that I'm going to find life, true life, abundant life, by laying my life down and by losing my life? That's not the way it works, we might say, according to the flesh, you know. The world assumes that finding true and abundant life in order to do so, they must live life for themselves. But here Christ teaches the opposite. The way to true life is to lay your life down and to live for Christ instead through faith in Him. And so the exhortation that Paul delivers to the Christian husband might also seem counterintuitive at first. Do you want to be blessed in your marriage, brother? Then lay down your life for your bride. Live not for yourself but for her. Make her happiness your leading concern. Make meeting her needs your aim, and watch and see how blessed you will be. That is the reasoning of the Apostle. All Christians will be blessed as they live, not to please themselves, but to please God and others. And this is especially true for the Christian husband, given the reality of the one flesh union that exists in the marriage bond. Brothers, you will need to reflect upon this point that I am here making. 
deeply by asking, am I loving my wife and living for her good, or am I self-centered? Your impulse might be to say, well, of course I love her. I'm doing just fine in this regard, you know. But I'm asking you to reflect carefully and deeply on this point. Am I really living in this way where I am leading my wife in love? Reflect upon it deeply. Are you daily and momentarily laying your life down for your wife? And please fight that impulse to think in terms of the heroic. How many men would be happy to say, I would die for you, dear, who at the same time grumble at the thought of helping with the dishes or are negligent when it comes to spending quality time with their wives to be sure that her spiritual needs are met? And so men, when the scriptures call us to lay down our lives for our wives, it is not primarily about the heroic, but it is about the common and daily affairs of life that this self-sacrificial living is to be manifest. Live with your wives in an understanding way, brothers. Do not be harsh with them. Build them up with your words. Never tear them down. Be tender-hearted, compassionate, and forgiving. And remember that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so the command is this, husbands, love your wives. The manner, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The rationale, given the one flesh union that exists in the marriage bond, he who loves his wife loves himself. Do not forget that. And lastly, we will consider the primary motive. Husbands are to love their wives, for when they do, they put on display Christ's love for the church. Stated differently, when husbands love their wives as they ought, the marvelous love and grace that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus is put on display, which is the design for marriage, and was from the beginning. Consider verse 32 with me. Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let us consider this one verse carefully for just a moment. These are deep waters here, I believe. The first question that we must ask is, what does the this refer to at the beginning of verse 32? This mystery is profound, the apostle says. Well, what mystery are you referring to, Paul? The answer is this. The this must refer back to the one flesh union that exists between husband and wife that was mentioned in the previous verse in the quote from Genesis 2.24. He's referring to the one flesh union when he says, this mystery is profound. The apostle calls this one flesh union a mystery. And Paul may have in mind that this union is a mystery because it is wrought by the Spirit of God. We cannot see this union, nor are we fully able to comprehend how two individuals become one in the covenant of marriage. Maybe, maybe there's a bit of that going on in his use of the term mystery. But please understand that when Paul uses the word mystery, he often has in mind those truths concerning Christ that were dimly revealed prior to prior to the arrival of the Christ, that have been revealed clearly now that He has come. He often uses the term mystery in this way. This was revealed dimly in ages past. The revelation was there, but it was hard to understand. It was a mystery in ages past. But now that the Christ has come, we see clearly how these things, these realities, these prophecies, these types and shadows... This law, how these things would be fulfilled in Christ. We see it clearly now. I believe this is how Paul is using the word mystery here. He wants for us to see that from the beginning, consider this, brothers and sisters, I think this is marvelous. From the beginning, marriage was designed by God to function 
as a picture of the union that would exist between Christ and his redeemed bride, the church. This was God's design for marriage from the beginning of time. He's just quoted Genesis 2.25 and following there. He's just quoted that text. He wants for us to see that from the beginning, this was God's design. It was there revealed dimly from the beginning of time. But now that the Christ has come, we see it clearly. He wants for us to understand this. This union between Christ and His church was revealed dimly in ages past in the covenant of marriage. But now that the Christ has come... And now that the new covenant has been instituted in His blood, that which was once a mystery has been made clear. And that is why Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul calls the one flesh union enjoyed by husband and wife profound, or a very great mystery. And he says that it refers to, pertains to, or has reference to Christ and the church. This means that the one flesh union experienced by husband and wife is above and before all else a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. You need to digest that a little bit. As you think about your marriage, you need to learn to think about it in those terms. What is this thing I'm involved in? What is this marriage bond all about? You thought it was about your happiness, didn't you? You thought it was for the good of the family, for the good of society. It's all of those things. Indeed, marriage is a very blessed thing. Husband and wife should expect to be happy in the marriage bond. Indeed, it is good for the family. Children need parents, a mom and a dad in the home. Uh, That is how it is designed to be. God is able to do marvelous things even when mom and dad aren't present. Um, He's able to bless the Christian home even if that is the reality. But we're to see that this was the design. It is good for society also. It's all of those things. But, but consider this. Above all else, this marriage relationship was designed to portray Christ's love for the church. It, it was designed to put all of that on display to the world. That is what Paul is here saying when he says that this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. It's wonderful to consider And so this is a weighty thing for us to consider, brothers and sisters, uh, that marriage is designed for the glory of God. Marriage is designed to magnify the marvelous grace and superabundant love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And if this is God's design for marriage, then we had better be sure to fulfill God's purpose. Husbands, I do hope that you feel the weightiness of the call of God that is upon you to lovingly lead your wife as Christ loved the church. You need to feel the weight of it. It's important. You've probably all experienced this at some point where you, in a a moment, just begin to feel the weightiness of some calling, whatever it may be. You know, maybe you're a parent and you look at the children and you go, oh my goodness, I'm responsible to raise these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You feel it, right? Hopefully it's not a discouragement, but it's it's healthy to feel the weightiness. I remember as a pastor, you know, at some point, I don't know when, It wasn't last week, I'll tell you this, but going, my goodness, this is a weighty responsibility. You know, that's healthy, that's good. Perhaps you felt it as a boss or as a teacher or whatever your station in life is. You go, my goodness, I have such a responsibility here to care for these people who are under me or to care for these people who are around me. Feel the weightiness, brothers. The call of God upon your life, if you are married, is 
to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. It's an awesome responsibility. It's a great privilege with many blessings attached. And may we be eager to fulfill this calling, being motivated above all else to give glory to God by putting on display Christ's unconditional and never-ceasing love for His bride, the church. And finally, Paul concludes his exhortation to husbands and wives with these simple words. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that the Lord would give us grace to daily die to self and to live instead for the glory of God and for the good of others. Here in this passage that we have considered, Paul sets forth God's ideal for the marriage relationship. Wives are to live in submission to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This is God's design. And brothers and sisters, sometimes things aren't ideal. I do understand that. In fact, they never are. In the marriage bond, we all fall short in this. In many ways, from day to day. But we are to strive for the ideal. And sometimes marriages don't go according to the ideal. I understand that as well. But God is gracious still. He is able to sustain us. He is able to uphold us. He is able to do mighty things, even in situations that are difficult and less than ideal. May we labor to walk worthy in every realm and sphere of life for the glory of God and for our good. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our feet. I pray in particular for husbands this morning that you would strengthen them to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling, this particular calling that they have been called to, to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. Father, would you bless the households here at Emmaus? For those who are in a marriage bond, I do pray that Christ would be put on display. May we all together learn to love one another unconditionally. May we take the posture of a servant before one another. May we consider the needs of others as more important than our own, Lord. Help us to live together in community in this way, but bless our households also. I do pray for husbands and wives, for parents and children, for those who have authority, for those who are to live in submission to the authority. Lord, help us to do so in a way that brings honor to your name. We pray these things in the name of Christ, who died for our sins and who rose again in victory. And all of God's people say, Amen.